So I'm here this morning. We're going to continue on in our study of engage um, and looking at how the Acts Church engaged as the body of Christ and how we can follow in suit and engage um, in these disciplines and these things of God as well. Um, so this morning we're going to talk about the breaking of bread. Um, and so to get that out of the text, we're going to start in Acts 2, Acts 2, starting in verse 42 through the end. Um, we're going to read through the whole passage to kind of get a feel for it and then pull out the pieces that we're looking at this morning. So in Acts 2, Luke writes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as I said, this morning we're talking about breaking of bread. Luke writes that the early church was devoted to breaking bread together. And this term that Luke uses kind of signifies two separate practices, two different things. Um, The first being that it looks like they were devoted to this practice of communion or taking the Lord's Supper. Um, And we can kind of infer that that's what he's talking about uh, in verse 42 because he says they're devoted. He probably wouldn't have had to tell us that they were devoted to eating dinner. We're all kind of used to that. That's kind of a common practice that we're all pretty devoted to. So, but Luke was probably referring to the fact that they were devoted to partaking in the Lord's Supper, partaking in communion together. They were, they were devoted to remembering his sacrifice while they were together and being thankful. After that, Luke goes on to say they broke bread in their homes together day by day. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And that seems like it could be more closely referring to having meals together in their homes. I think it's interesting that the Bible, the Holy Word of God, takes time to mention that people were eating together on a regular basis. But he did that because it was important. In Scripture, unless I'm mistaken, there's approximately 14 uh, different times where Jesus is recorded as sharing a meal with other people. Jesus knows us. We were made in his image. He knows how to get a hold of us. One of the best ways to do that is to have dinner together. Jesus used it as a time to minister to, get, minister to people. He used it as a time to bring people together who wouldn't normally get together. The Pharisees asked, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? It's because everyone was invited to the table. The table is a place where we, we come together with people that we love. Today's Valentine's Day or as I used to refer to it, Singles Awareness Day. (laughs) Anybody have plans for Valentine's Day for dinner? If not, husbands, you've got a chance to run to the bathroom and figure that out before the end of the service. We'll we'll cover for you. But everyone goes to dinner together. We go to dinner with people that we love. And if we go out to dinner, we see other people also engaging in these meals. Sometimes you go out to dinner and Susan Collins is sitting at the next table. And that happened last Valentine's. So, but we eat with those that we love, and we eat with people we don't know. It's a, it's a natural way for us to engage with others, to, 
get to know each other deeper or to get to know each other at all. That's the one thing, if nothing else, that we have in common. It's one of the most typical ways that we engage with each other. But the way that we eat together is also consistently slipping. I read this week that over the past 20 years, surveys show that the frequency of family dinners has declined by over 33%. And that's from the last 20 years, which means late 90s, early 2000s. I think we could probably infer that dinners had slipped already a significant amount at that point. But eating dinner together is a crucial part of our families, of our growth. Um, Just a couple examples for kids and teens. Kids and teens that share at least three family dinners per week are less likely to be overweight, are more likely to eat healthy foods. They're more likely to perform better academically. They're less likely to engage in risky behavior. And they're likely to have better relationships with their parents. Spending time together at the table has deep impact on our families. And I can speak kind of from experience of the opposite of that. If you don't know my story, I come from a broken family. My parents were divorced when I was about six or seven years old. And so I don't really have a memory of my entire family sitting around the table together, engaging with each other. And though both of the houses I grew up in uh, went through phases or occasionally tried to make sure that we were all around the table together, it was often inconsistent because it just gets hard and the, the busyness we allow into our lives takes precedence over that so often. And not doing that has had a deep impact on me as well. If we can say that having dinner together has a deep impact, I think we can say the opposite is also true. For an example, I often have a hard time engaging with people or keeping conversations going. And part of that's probably due to the way that I'm wired. Part of that's probably due to my personality. But I also didn't have these dinners multiple nights per week where I would practice engaging with others where I could come out of my shell. Instead, I often had the option to isolate myself, which is my go-to, or at the very least, sit staring in the same direction as everyone else in the room. And so just like meals like this are important for our families, they're also important to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I wouldn't say they're just important, I think they're absolutely crucial. It feels good to be invited to the table, to be around the table on this level ground with everyone else. And so that's a little bit about breaking bread, about eating together. But breaking bread, Luke also was referring to communion and the Lord's Supper. And so we often hold these two things kind of in separate categories as the church. We think of, we have a potluck together or we have dinner with someone. And then during a service, maybe we share communion. But in the early church, these often would have been done in unison. They would have been done together. You would have shared a dinner together and shared in communion. You would have had lunch together and remembered the sacrifice of Jesus and celebrated that. So I asked myself the question, what is communion? And I tried to come up with the simplest definition with as few big words as I could. Because there are some words, if you look up the definition of communion, that I had to double-check what the words in the definition meant. So, the simplest definition that I could come up with for communion is, communion is an act with sacred significance, 
where we share in the consumption of bread and wine, representing the body and blood of Christ, to observe and remember the work of Jesus on the cross. I'll say that one more time. Communion is an act with sacred significance, where we share in the consumption of bread and wine, representing the body and blood of Christ, to observe and remember the work of Jesus on the cross. The book of Luke gives us one of the takes on Jesus implementing the Lord's Supper. And so if you have a Bible and want to turn over to Luke 22, where it'll be on the screen, we're going to be reading starting in verse 14. Luke writes, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So when we take communion, we're remembering that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. The bread and the wine are these tangible, visible reminders of the love of Jesus. And so rather than just telling us to remember, as God often does, he doesn't just tell us to remember, he gives us something to do that reminds us. Instead of just telling us to remember, Jesus gave us a reminder of a way that we could remember that we are dependent on his sacrifice as a reminder that as we are dependent on food and drink to live physically, we're desperately dependent on him to live spiritually. And communion is, is kind of what it sounds like. Uh, one of the original words for communion is a word we talked about a couple weeks ago, koinonia, which means fellowship. It meant coming together and sharing. It's a chance to bring ourselves before God and to tangibly take part in this life that he's given us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's also a time to be in community together, to do this together. And not only with the people in the room, we talked about at 8.30 that we were also doing it with people who were watching live, and it's also the church that has come before us and the church that will come after us as we all share in the remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. So as we take communion, it's a time for us to reflect. It's a time to look at our hearts, at our relationship with Jesus, and make sure there's nothing that's separating us. There's nothing that we've put in between, no sin, no idols that we've put ahead of him. And also, as we take communion, we should remember to be thankful. Because what we're partaking in is remembering the act that brought us salvation. The act of remembering the generous grace of God and the privilege that we have of being forgiven. And so this supper that Jesus first shared with his disciples is hugely symbolic. We already talked about the breaking of the bread being his body, the shedding of his blood being the cup. That being a reminder that we desperately need food physically and we need him spiritually. And also, even the way that Jesus implemented the ceremony, the way that he phrased everything, the way that he did things during this first Lord's Supper, 
shared many similarities with the Jewish engagement ceremony. Um, I preached a message about two years ago, almost to the day. Travis really doesn't like preaching on the second Sunday in February, because I've had it like the last three or four years. Um, <laughs> and so I, I preached a couple years ago about uh, a Jewish engagement ceremony and communion and how they look so similar. And that's really cool because it signifies that we've been invited to become a part of the bride of Christ. And so with that, though, there's also a historical significance. This significance showing the supremacy of God's plan all the way back to Exodus. And so if you turn with me to Exodus 13, we're going to look at uh, a few verses starting in verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No unleavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And here's what one of the verses that sticks out. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And so this points back to the Passover and the Israelites released from slavery in Egypt. And so what happened is we, we kind of all know the story of that, of the Israelites being slaves in Egypt and God sent 10 plagues and the final plague was to kill the firstborn and everything in Egypt. But God made a way so that if the Israelites put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, he would spare them in those houses. And so after they were released, God commanded them. Remember how I just said, he doesn't tell us to remember. He gives us something to do that reminds us of what he's done. He gave them this day. He gave them this feast every year to partake in so that when their sons, when their children asked, why are we doing this? They would tell them, we're doing this because... God released us from Egypt. God saved us from slavery in Egypt. And so it was this meal, it was the Passover meal in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. This meal that he was sharing with his disciples and his disciples and him would have eaten of this meal their entire lives. This was a practice that happened over 1,400 years beforehand and so they would have grown up doing it and so it would have been pretty normal for them to have eaten this meal with each other. It would have been pretty routine. But Jesus flips it on its head, and he says, yes, this has historical significance of pointing back to when God was faithful and released you from slavery in Egypt. But all this time, it's also been pointing forward to the cross, when my body would be broken, my blood would be shed, and you would be released from slavery of sin. God's plan was the same from the beginning. The gospel is all through the Old Testament. And so with that, how, how should we celebrate communion? 
And actually, we don't have a huge amount of detail on how to celebrate communion. What we really have more of is a what not to do, um, because the church, by the time Paul was around and writing to churches, had already started stumbling and messing things up. So we're not alone in being messy. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're going to start in verse 17. Paul writes to the Corinthian church with some pretty harsh words. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul uses some tough love with the Corinthian church here because they were completely missing the point. They were getting it completely wrong. The maturity of those who were part of the body of the church in Corinth had completely forgotten why they were celebrating communion. Um, as, we, as I mentioned before, communion and eating together would have often been done at the same time. And so as the case is in Corinth here, they would have had these agape feasts or these love feasts. They're just kind of just like a good old-fashioned potluck. And as part of that, they would have taken communion together. But what was going on, if you can imagine, when we have a potluck here, when COVID's finally over, you have the line going down the hall, and the first five people take all the meatballs, and there's none for the rest. <laughs> so people would bring food. They would bring food, and a few would take all of it before everyone got a chance to go through. And so some people would get stuffed, some people would get drunk on drinking all the wine they had for communion, and then some people would go away hungry, not having anything. Does that sound like any way to celebrate the most selfless act that's ever been known to man? With the selfishness of thinking of myself before others? That's the opposite of what we're reminded of with communion. Later on in the passage, Paul instructs the church, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Some translations say, share with one another. Because the thing that we're celebrating is something that we share in, that was done for all of us. It's done for all of us, and I think we need to remember that, that we are united, we're together. We saw the connection um, from back in Exodus, which is from over 3,000 years ago, that God's plan was already in place. Since the beginning, his plan was all of you. His plan was the church. And he has never had a plan B because his plan is perfect. And I think one reason that it's super important to share in communion together is because we need to remember who the promise is for. So often we like to think of the promises for me I know a bunch of people who, and I've said it before, that if you take some things out of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, well, you could, replace, you could say, for God so loved Dylan, that he gave his only son. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, because it's true, but Peter proclaimed in a sermon at Pentecost that we looked at a few weeks ago, the promise is for you 
and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We tend to focus a lot of importance on our personal relationship with God, and that's, that's crucial. And I'm going to talk about in a few minutes why it's super important that we individually seek God and have our spiritual disciplines. But sometimes I think we can fall into this pit of thinking that, well, if I get right with God, then God will be on my side, and then it can be me and God against whoever I have a problem with. But the promise was for all. And as we partake in communion, we should look within, we should look at the things that might be in the way of our relationship with Jesus, but we should also look beside us, and we should look across from us, and remember that the cross was as much for them as it was for us. You may have heard the saying that if it was only for me or only for you, Jesus would have gone to the cross anyway. And I don't think I would argue with that, but I would say that that's not the reason he went to the cross. Jesus' sacrifice was for all. God knew what he was doing. He had his plan cast from the beginning, and Jesus sealed that with his crucifixion and with his resurrection. And that's the act that we're remembering through communion. And so, as we continue today, I have a couple of challenges that I want to issue you. The first just being simply to get around the table. It's crucial to the health of your family, and it's crucial to the health of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not going to give you specifics on how to do that. I'm not going to tell you how to have dinner, but do whatever works for your family. Make it intentional. Be, be engaged with each other. Sit around the table and let it have meaning. And secondly, and this may be new for some of you, I would challenge you, don't let a Sunday service be the only time that you partake in communion. See, don't let it be just another tradition, something that we do to check a box, something that we do once a month or once every couple of months. Valuable practices start to lose their splendor when we cram them into the box of a simple tradition. This communion that we share on was a discipline that the early church devoted themselves to, and it's one that we should also devote ourselves to as often as we can with each other. And I know that these challenges may seem a little difficult to do in the midst of something like COVID going on, where I'm up here talking in a mask, and I wrestled with whether or not I should even challenge us with these things because of that. But just because things look different right now, and just because we can't necessarily sit across from as many people as we normally would, I don't think that means that we shouldn't start putting these things into practice. If anything, I think maybe it means that we just start off smaller. And that might be the way that's better to start anyway. I challenge you to begin these practices with those that you can right now. I mean, if you think about it, is it really that difficult if you're having dinner with your family or with some close friends in your home, at the end of that, to stop and take a minute and say, we're gonna, we're gonna stop and we're gonna remember Jesus together. We're gonna remember his sacrifice. As you sit around a table and look across at someone, that the sacrifice was just as much for them as it was for you. Remembering that you both desperately need the grace and mercy of Jesus and that you were united through that. And I know it might feel 
awkward at first. You may feel unequipped. You may feel unworthy to do something like this. It's so uncomfortable to be this raw and intentional with someone sitting so close to you that they can see behind your mask. But is it awkward because it's wrong or is it awkward because we've been doing it wrong? If we're unable to be this honest and this open with those that are closest to us, then who are we going to do it with? As a staff, we've been uh, reading a book, and one of the ideas that keeps popping up in every chapter, it seems like, is this idea that pushes into why we should be able to be the most honest group of people in the world. Paul David Tripp writes, We are lovingly called out of the darkness, out from behind the trees, into the open and the light. Not because we don't have things to hide, but because grace means we no longer have to hide them. I'll read that for you one more time. We are lovingly called out of the darkness, out from behind the trees, and into the open and the light. Not because we don't have things to hide, but because grace means we no longer have to hide them. Everything that we feel like hiding, everything that we've done that's wrong, was covered by that sacrifice that Jesus made. And so because of that, we don't have to live in shame, we don't have to live in fear, we don't have to live in darkness. Because of that, we can be honest with each other because the things that we're being honest about were covered by the payment that Jesus made on the cross. And whether it's family or friends, or whether it's people we don't know, but that are part of the body of Christ, we don't have to hide from them. We don't have to let the awkwardness stop us from doing things that are committing to God. I know it may take a bigger commitment It takes a bigger commitment to do communion in a way that we would do it on our own, that we would do it more often, that we wouldn't just do it when a pastor or a leader decides that we should do it as part of a Sunday morning and take it from someone who's good at finding the awkward in any situation, that you can push through it, that I think that's what God is looking for. He's looking for the ones who give the greater commitment. He's looking for those who are fully committed to him, those who are willing to break through the things that might be awkward at first in the pursuit of pleasing him, in the pursuit of worshiping his name, and in the pursuit of proclaiming his death, which is what we are called to do through communion. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me and proclaim my death till I come. Because of this grace that we celebrate with communion, we don't have to hide from one another, and we get the opportunity, we get the privilege of sharing in these moments, these precious moments of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been grafted in to salvation. And so I challenge you with that this morning. I challenge you to get around the table with those of, that you can right now, And I challenge you to partake in communion with others in your home, day by day. This book, Scripture, it's full of directions, it's full of teachings, and there are some specific instructions for pastors and for teachers, elders and deacons, but a whole lot more of it is is for all of us. 
the callings, the directions, the warnings, they're not just for the people who stand up in the front, but the, for the people who do stuff behind the scenes. They're for everyone who walks through the doors. They're for everyone who watches online. They're for everyone who's a part of the body of Christ. This book isn't written for just a handful of people to read it and then to give a, the rest of us the Sparknotes version. I would challenge you not to lean on those in charge to make sure that your spiritual disciplines are being accomplished. We all need to take the initiative to follow God to the best of our ability to seek him earnestly with all of our hearts. And then when we come together, we're already better equipped to help each other, to carry one another's burdens. Because, because of the grace that we're a part of, we don't have to hide what we're struggling with. We can share it with each other and then we can assist one another and serve one another in helping. And so as the worship team gets ready to come up, as Travis comes up and we're going to partake in this communion together, this reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus, it unites us here this morning. It unites the service that was in here at 8.30 and all those who watched online and all those who will listen online in the coming days. And it unites the church of the past that's already been, and the church that is to come, reunited through the sacrifice of Jesus, through this communion that we engage in together. So as we get ready to partake in this communion together, would you pray with me one more time? Father God, we, uh, <clears throat> we come before you knowing that we tend to make mistakes, and we tend to put other things before you. And Lord, as we uh, look inwardly this morning at our hearts, at places where our relationship has been severed by things we've put in between you and us, Lord, we ask for help in putting those things aside and chasing after you alone. And Lord, we also along with looking inwardly, we look to our left and our right, we look forward and behind us and remember that the sacrifice you made was as much for those that are around us as it was for us. So Lord, in remembering that, would, be, would we be even more thankful and worshipful of your name for what you've done? That you've given us a place to belong, you've given us a place to commune together, to be engaged as your body, with you and with all those who are seeking you. Lord, would you help us to have a renewed uh, dedication for you? Would you fill our hearts with your spirit? Would you drive us running towards you? Not worrying about the awkwardness, not worrying about the suffering that's in this world, but looking forward to the prize, to the day when we'll be able to engage and commune and break bread with you yourself. Lord, we look forward to that day and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a powerful message, Dylan. Thank you. And that second Sunday in February thing, that's just coincidence. <laughs> we want to move into a time of communion to basically practice what we preach, right? Break bread together. 
And I'll just echo what Dylan said. I mean, I think some of my most powerful times of communion haven't been necessarily in a church service, but in the living room, in an office, uh, with, with a group, and some friends, and some family, and uh, I do echo Dylan's challenge. Don't let Sunday morning be the only time that you break bread in this way and remember the sacrifice of Jesus for you and for the people around that table. What a reminder for them. What a reminder for them. As often as we gather, as often as we devote ourselves to these things, do it in remembrance of me. And what better way to do that than to identify, right, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so I invite you to take your bread out. Jesus, while he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for me, which is broken for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. And when I think of the body of Christ, I think of provision. I think of provision. I think he is enough. Right? He's enough for you. He's enough for me. He's enough for yesterday. He's enough for today. And the promise is that he'll be enough for tomorrow. And so as we partake in this, which I think is a pretty special opportunity. We haven't been able to do this in a while. Haven't done this in a while. But as we take the bread today, remember the provision of the body of Christ. That there was no sacrifice that could pay your debt, but Jesus. So Father, we thank you for the daily bread, for the provision of your faithfulness, for the, for the provision of your forgiveness, for the provision of your love, for the provision of our needs yesterday, today, tomorrow. So as we hold this bread in our hands, God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son for the world. Which certainly, as Dylan said, includes us, but it's not limited to. So God, I pray that we would embrace the opportunity to partake of these sacraments in this moment, but also as we go, as we have dinner with some friends this week, as we, whatever the case may be, God, may it not be limited to this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you eat this morning. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you, spilt for you. I don't know about you, but every time I hold this cup, I think, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for the blood spilt out. God, as I've been reading the last couple days, at the end of the book of Matthew, where the crown of thorns and the and the red garment and the, the beating that Jesus took on our behalf, the blood that he spilt on our behalf, that we could have access to forgiveness, to freedom, that we could be justified as sons and daughters of you. And God, thank you doesn't feel like enough. And so for me, it's with a deep sense of gratitude I stand here with this cup, reminding myself of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for me, for my friends, for my family, that we may have life and have it eternally. And so with that, we thank you for the blood. In Jesus' name. God bless you as you drink this morning.